You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Once Marvin left, I set up a file for Audrey Vance. Ordinarily, I'd have had Marvin sign a boilerplate contract specifying what he'd hired me to do and agreeing to my rates. In this matter, we were operating on a handshake, and my assignment was open-ended. He wrote me a check for $1,500 as a retainer, against which I'd bill. If my charge exceeded the total, he had the option of authorizing additional expenses. Much would depend on how effective I'd been. I made a copy of his check, tucked it in the file folder, and set the check itself aside to be deposited. In essence, I was doing a background investigation on a dead woman. In terms of our attitudes, he and I were at odds. I thought he was in denial, resisting the truth about Audrey when it didn't tally with his hopes. I had my suspicions, but I understood his hanging on to his belief in her innocence. He didn't want to think he'd been played for a fool. I was convinced she was a professional crook, and he'd been duped. I simply hadn't proved it yet. At the same time, I was irritated with him for being too stubborn to admit he'd fallen in love with a skunk. I've done the same thing myself, so if you want to consider the underlying motivation, you might say I was acting in his behalf as a way of taking care of myself. Psychobabble 101. In the past, when I was embroiled with rogues, I'd been as blind as he was and just as intractable. Here, I had a chance to take action instead of sitting around in a stew of misery. Anger is about power. Tears are about weakness. Guess which category I prefer. Sue Grafton is the author of the Alphabet series, featuring private detective Kinsey Melhone from A is for Alibi through her latest V is for Vengeance. Thank you for joining me, Sue. You are welcome. It's a pleasure. Sue, you know, when you title a novel V is for Vengeance, you're making a big promise to the reader. It's one thing to title a novel B is for Burglar. You put a burglar in there. <laughs> and you've done your job, right. <laughs> your um... job is done. V is for Vengeance is a complicated emotional arc, which you certainly deliver in this novel. I'd like you to talk about the conception of this novel. When you gave it this title, how much of the emotional arc did you have in mind and how much came out of the writing? When I started the work, for one thing, I wasn't exactly sure I would call it B.S. for Vengeance. I had some options. Some letters are easier than others. Venom was a possibility. Victim, though I do not care for victimhood. I basically like vengeance because it has a sort of dark energy attached to it. And as Kinsey says at one point, I think she says, for the record, I'd like to say that I'm a big fan of forgiveness as long as I have a chance to get even first. And I think that kind of sums it up. So in many ways, there were threads through this story that underlined and supported the notion of revenge. Now, there's a couple kinds of experience of vengeance in the story because you want your readers to experience it and your characters. So that's a tricky uh, proposition to deliver that kind of emotional satisfaction. Uh, Tell us a little bit about just 
what was the little nugget of crime lore that got you started in this in this work? Initially, I came up with the idea of writing about shoplifting when I was writing Tears for Trespass. For that book, I had come up with about six ideas, couldn't figure out how to make any of them work. Eventually, for that book, I chose the issue of elder abuse, which I was very uneasy about. I thought, this is not a chuckle. My reader is going to kill me for this one. As it turned out, many people in my age range have parents who are quite vulnerable, so that turned out to be a subject that resonated with a lot of re readers. At that time, I had looked at the issue of shoplifting, but I couldn't figure out how to make the story work. I thought, for instance, that she might, Kinsey Milhone, might be working as a sort of undercover shopper. But that seemed so boring. I just had to dismiss that. At some point, after I wrote U.S. for Undertow, it occurred to me that since Kinsey has training as a police officer and served on the Santa Teresa Police Department for two years, having her witness a shoplifting incident would be a perfect way to trigger a storyline. So I had to work it out. Also, I knew from the beginning that she, on her birthday, May 5th, 1988, got punched in the face, uh, a blow that breaks her nose and gives her two black eyes. And she talks about the fact that that was her big birthday surprise for that year. So part of it was figuring out how to set it up so that was the, the moment, the fatal moment. And it took me a while to, to work through the details of it. I was not entirely certain who punched her in the nose. I, as soon I I had a an inkling, but it was a question of laying the story out very carefully to pay that off. Now, one of the things I love about all of your books and all these Kinsey Mulholland stories is your uh, focus on the low key, the everyday, uh, the not these are, are you're not working with Doctor Evils here. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. Well, I am very interested in the criminal mind and. Truly, my focus in terms of my own internal process is always the psychology of crime. I read the paper every day and I'm astonished. It's like there are bank robbers who leave their cell phones in the back seat of the car. I'm just dazzled by that. I, I am fascinated by embezzlers. Every third day you read about somebody working for the school system or for the charity for the poor children and they're stealing money and I'm going how can they imagine they won't get caught so at whatever level I am working I am always trying to understand why people do what they do primarily of course the issue is murder why do certain people cross that line we all get angry we all have bitter thoughts we all want revenge in some form. Some people take it with a gun, and I un I'm interested in why that happens. After 22 novels in how many years? <laughs> What's that? After 22 novels, in how many years has it been since Days oh. Alibi? Yeah, I've been in this business, what, 30 years? Yeah, 30 Four years. to go? Yeah. <laughs> now, I'd like, you've been immersed in darkness, in murder, in death, in crime. And, and I'm wondering, 
ha these novels, for all that they're immersed in that, they're fun to read. They're enjoyable. <laughs> we re they're engaging. <laughs> and uh, I'd like you to talk about how you keep that balance and what tension it is that keeps the ball rolling forward. Well, I structure these stories carefully. I truly believe in beginning, middle, and end. <laughs> you know, the basics of how to tell a story in a way that will provide the reader with the greatest pleasure. So as I'm working, there are always three points I consider. Is this plausible? Often a murder scheme is so elaborate and exotic that I, as a reader, sit there thinking, who would bother? You know, why would, go to Sears and get a hammer and knock the guy in the head. You know, let's not get into blow darts. So I'm, I'm interested in plausibility. I am interested in what is dramatic. Often what is plausible is not dramatic. It's boring, and I don't care to write boring books. Once we talk about plausibility and drama, the issue is what is satisfying to a reader. When you get to the end of the book, you should be thinking to yourself, all right, that was, that's right, that's how it should end. Not that everything is perfect, but did you see that a balance has been restored in the universe? Well, that's something I have to say. Finishing this book, is it, that's exactly the, the feeling that I had. I just said, all right, this just <laughs> rocks. It, it felt exactly right. And this is a very complicated machine. This is a, you do some interesting things with your prose as a mm -hmm. writer. And one of the things you do is you go back and forth between um, a, a first person narrator and third person narrator. And that's, that's, not, that's not usual. So talk about the decision to do that. I first began that with S's for silence because in that book, I was talking about a woman named Violet Sullivan who had been missing for 34 years. Her daughter, Daisy, hires Kinsey to find out what happened to her mother. So I'm sitting there thinking to myself, Kinsey Milhano is gonna interview everybody in, Day in Violet Sullivan's life. She will never know who's telling the truth. And it's gonna be head chat, yakety, yakety, yak. So I thought, how can I solve this problem? And I thought to myself, why don't I cut back in time and let the reader see what really happened? Then move forward to Kinsey's point of view from her investigation. Kinsey's always dominate these books. So even if I cut back in time, even if I move from character to character, the story belongs to her. Mm -hmm. It is her investigation, it's her sensibility, it's her coming to terms with what happened. With this book, one of the issues I deal with, in addition to plausibility, drama, and satisfaction, is who should carry the story. Until I wrote Essence for Silence, it all belonged to Kinsey. She was the person through whom all events were filtered. With S, I understood that I could blow the doors off. I could open up some turf for myself. So when I got to use for undertow again, I had to work out the story, I had to figure out who would carry it. With this novel also, it isn't always the obvious. And I have learned to get out of my own way. It is not up to me to dictate to characters who's supposed to do what. So sometimes I just wait to see who's gonna step forward. 
It's like inevitably there's somebody who's going, it's like being in a classroom. Teacher, teacher, I know the answer. And so it's like, all right, dear, you may tell this part of the story. So at this point in my career, 22 books down and four to go, I keep saying that to myself, my job is to open myself up to the story and let it be what it is. I, it's not up to me to dictate. Who dictates the story? Oh, shadow, shadow. I am a Jungian at heart, and Carl Jung, in his theories about human psyche, distinguished between ego and shadow. Ego is our public self. It's who we want the world to believe we are. It's usually fake, but we put on a pretty good show. I, so, I, I'm getting a good show right now. <laughs> yes, exactly. Shadow is all the pieces of ourselves that we repudiate. So in our shadow, we put all the nasty, spiteful, vengeful thoughts that we have. In the writing process, I have to have access to my shadow. So even though some of what's in my shadow is not pretty, it's perfect for mystery fiction. It's perfect for the criminal mind because I think we all carry that dark side. The people I meet who are trying hardest to persuade me they are sunny and innocent and pure, I know for sure they've got a dark side that we better not get close to. So in a way, I prefer people who will own their weaknesses and their the despicable parts of themselves, because for me, that's all the stuff of fiction. I, I love this idea of, of the shadow self, because that's, I think, one of the things you do so well is, is look into the minds of, of the criminals and, and um, give us their reactions and their experiences. And, and this book is very interesting, because a lot of it, as you say, as we heard in the reading, it's to find out the background of somebody who yeah. dies very early on. Yeah. And one of the things you do is her reaction when she's arrested for her shoplifting. Yeah. Yeah. You give us this great description of what she does. And I think that's really interesting. And I love this idea of looking into the a book about somebody who's not there for most of the exactly. book. Exactly, because Audrey Vance, who is the character who precipitates the action in this book, is a cipher. She is engaged to a man who thinks he knows her. And in fact, he has very little information about her. So once Kinsey begins to investigate and uncover unsavory notions about this woman, he is appalled. And he doesn't want to admit that he has made an error. So part of his position is it must be a mistake. Something else must be going on, which in some regards is true. Now, one of the things I love about this book, too, is that in the traditional PI novel, you have a, a customer, client, who approaches the investigator and says, find this out. Yes. And yeah. all, the relationship is kind of mentorish and nice and very good. You, you have two, Kinsey has two clients in this book, and they're both just, really annoying. <laughs> exactly. Well, part of my attitude about criminals is that they are not as separate from us as we'd like to think. We want to believe, for instance, that pedophiles are evil and squinting and 
smell bad. You know, we want to believe that evil people are self-evident, that you can walk into a room and pick out the evil ones, but you can't. Pick up your paper, today's paper. People who have been trusted and respected sometimes have that dark side at work. So part of what I do with these books, I look at criminal behavior as an extension of myself. These are not people who are outside my realm of petty emotions and vicious emotions. So I am very connected to my villains. One of my best, I must say, just as a little aside, was Solana Rojas and Tia's for Trespass, mm -hmm. who couldn't have been a worse person, but she was so outraged and so judgmental of other people, and that so amused me. She felt, she knew how bad she was, and she thought other people were just incredibly stupid for leaving themselves open to her. Well, that's one of the things that, that makes your work so enjoyable is that, um, it's fun no matter who you're with, especially in this book. And this book has some really interesting aspects, too, in that there's kind of a sweet romance between yes. two people, who neither one of whom is particularly likable in some way. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, I, I wrote about a character named Dante, who is a, I, I think of him as a sort of West Coast mobster, but not of the New York mafia type. He is a bad man, but he's reached an age where he's losing his edge. He's getting to a point that, for instance, he ha there's somebody in this book he knows needs to be whacked, and he can't do it, you know, and he knows he is remiss. In his early days, he would have taken this guy out in a heartbeat. Now he's going to can't do it. So he realizes the end is near. He knows that the feds are on to him. They're piling up charges and he's guilty of every single one of them so he has a plan afoot to to escape his life and part of what happens in the course of this is that he meets a woman whom he falls in love with and it complicates his life and hers i might add which is already complicated exactly. and you have a lot of fun with the the uh low lives of high of high society exactly. <laughs> i really enjoy that Thank this you. vision of you know the the wealthiest and the chicest among us as being the lowest exactly. <laughs> the most reviled exactly. well it's funny people have an odd attitude toward the wealthy and i know a lot of them and they are dear people honestly many are very generous i don't find them at all wicked there is no immediate association between having money and being greedy or unkind and so it's fun to look at, at the rich they live really remarkable lives I, and it always amuses me but i i have a great respect for them and for what they've accomplished and for what they provide to society so even there they are part of a continuum, you know, all the way up and down the line. One thing that's really striking about all your books is, you know, the sense of place. Just this certain patch of, you know, of, of California. And it's not L.A. Right. It's not San Francisco. And you uh, take a, a riff from, is it, is it John D. or Ross McDonald? Ross McDonald. Ross McDonald, yes. Uh, to to uh, re, re, uh, 
rename uh, Santa yes, Barbara. I did. I snitched it from him fair and square. <laughs> I think he was dead by then or close to it, and so I didn't think he would object. But I love the fact that Ross McDonald referred to Santa Barbara as Santa Teresa. One reason I adopted that is that it, it gives me a, a distance between what I'm writing about and what I know of that town. I know a lot of law enforcement personnel. I know lawyers. I know pathologists. I know doctors. I know people who are so generous with their time. I don't want, to, want it to look like I'm telling secrets. So if I fictionalize the town, it, there's a safety factor. You know, I'm not talking about that lawyer. I'm talking about the other one, the fictional one that I just invented. So that helps me. It also eliminates those letters from readers who say that street goes north and south, not east and west. So I call myself the goddess of Santa Teresa. I control the weather. I control all the traffic patterns. I control the homicides, and I see that most of the bad guys get caught. Uh I, I love the, you know, the what's interesting, too, is just that kind of sensibility because it really captures um, the central coast of California, yeah. where I live. I live up in uh, Santa Cruz. Ah, oh, but yeah. um, So I'd like you to just talk about the difference in, in shading the sensibility from L.A. and some of the action and some of the people in this novel are from L.A. And, and you know, San Francisco, both of those cities have you know, very storied and well-known detective characters. Yeah. Um, and so talk about, it's almost like, you know, you have a magnetic pole up here, a magnetic pole up here, and you're like in the yeah. center between well, them. Well, and my, my interest is in the details. I try not to have a point of view or an agenda. I'm not selling anything. I feel if I can describe what happens, and be as specific as possible and help the reader be part of the scene, the reader can draw a conclusion. The reader doesn't need me to editorialize. The reader wants or is exposed to my view of how the world works. And I think that's a way of inviting the reader into the process. I give the information, the reader can form his or her own conclusion about what's going on. That's what makes your book so great because it seems to me that you think about the people who read them. You're not writing them to to purvey a point of view, nor are you uh, writing uh, something that you hope will be adapted into a movie. That yep. you immerse yourself into the allow us to immerse ourselves in the reading experience, and I think that takes a lot of skill to pick out mm -hmm. the right details tell us what to see and what not to see. There's a great part in this book, oh, where we get to see Kinsey from another character's yes. point of view. And it's so much fun. Because yeah, he's a mobster and he, I mean, she's kind of a sassy child and he's sitting there looking at her. It's like, do you know who you're talking to here? You know, it is incomprehensible to him that she would be so forthcoming and so unimpressed with his power mm -hmm. but she gets quite irate with him and that was fun for me it was fun for me to look at her from his point of view now when you're writing a, a, a series like this you have a lot of stuff you're way into this you must have a huge amount of details to keep track of yes how do you have a computer database do you have a I do. Bible? well I have a chart that I keep 
I keep journals for every book I write. Mm -hmm. The current journal for W, which has no title and a story that I hope will hold, hold solid, I have probably 394 single-spaced pages of notes. I have two or three chapters written. The, the notebooks for Vias for Vengeance, the page count on that was, I believe, 967 single-spaced pages. This is because I'm not that smart. <laughs> I write down everything that occurs to me. I'll pursue an idea. If I do research, it goes into the journal. I talk about my whole emotional connection to a book. If I'm facing a scene that I am unsure of, I talk about the fact that I'm scared. I talk about the fact that I think maybe the pacing is off in certain chapters. So I own it all. I, instead of pretending I'm smarter than anybody else, I'm, I'm admitting that I'm baffled. How interesting. So you, you, you blog about your own books for yourself. Yes. The, the <laughs> journals I describe as a long, whiny letter I write to myself. And I just admit to everything because my feeling is that if I'm afraid, which I am just about daily, if I don't acknowledge that, my worries about the work, that emotion will sabotage the work itself. So I feel if I can own it and lay it out on the page and look at it, it's like, yes, I am afraid of this scene. I'm not sure how to write it. I don't know how to shape it. That frees me to do the work. Boy, that's so interesting. I will promise you the journals are the most boring thing. Endless repetitions. What I do, I tell myself the story until I am kind of liberated. So I will tell myself a sequence over and over and over. And about every fourth page, I go, hey, I've got a great idea. And I <laughs> recycle an idea I've been whining about for pages. So if you read it, you'll begin to see that I'm mentally ill. <laughs> But I've made a living at it, and that's a good news. Well, you know, when you're working in that series mode, um, one of the things that, that's interesting that you've done is at this point, when you started writing those books some 30 years ago, um, you and Kinsey were, were probably pretty much in sync. Ten years apart, yes. <laughs> now the gap is much wider. She turns 38. I am 71. So if it takes me eight more years to write this, the four, four remaining books, I'll be close to 80. People are asking me what I intend to do then. It's like, are you nuts? <laughs> I'm going to party really hard. I'm going to have the biggest nap I've ever had. It's going to be terrific. And we'll see if I write beyond that. Well, uh, the thing I have to ask you is, how come Kinsey is still in the 80s? Ah, well, I painted myself into that corner, and thank you for asking, because sometimes readers get confused about where I am. A is for Alibi was published in 1982, May of 82, and the story takes place in May of 82. B takes place in June of 82. C takes place in August of 82. So three books into the series, I'm already hopelessly trapped in time. At this point, I did understand that if I intended to write 26 books, I couldn't have her age one year per book, because by the time I got to Zia's for Zero, 
she'd be really old, and the notion of her jumping out from behind bushes, knocking guys in the head with her pocketbook, it was going to start being silly. I do think private detectives, law enforcement, they need to be physically fit. They need to be able to chase people and escape. So I wanted to keep a kind of reality in terms of her prowess, her physical fitness. And now I can't get her out. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that as I was reading this, I was thinking, you know, this is kind of like reverse science fiction. Yes, it is. It is. Because in her life, there is no internet, no cell phones. She's living currently in 1988. We know it's May 5th because that's her birthday. And I believe when the series ends, Z is for Zero, the narrative year will be 1990. And she might I don't think she's going to turn 40. I think she's going to be on the brink of 40, but perhaps not over that line. As a writer, this must present a real challenge for you to not to not put any anachronisms in. I mean, you've got a character who's actually could go out and buy the paperback version of Neuromancer, <laughs> which is the novel that oh, defines the current age we're in. Exactly. And I am writing historical novels, really. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I have to do research because, to me, 1988 is like day before yesterday, and it's also 100 years ago. So it's hard to remember. Computer issues in particular, I have to call my computer expert and say, for instance, do you remember when computers had a black screen and that little amber pulsing light in the bottom right-hand corner? I had forgotten. It's so easy to forget how crude and how elementary it all was. Now you have an iPhone, an iPad, and it's amazing what can be done. Well, you must just wish Kinsey could just look stuff up. I mean, one of the things I think is so interesting, too, is the research you must have to do on the information sources yes. that were available during the day. And there's some great examples in this book where she's looking up addresses and going to property records. And you realize that that kind of information has been out there for all these oh, yeah. years. And, and even in the 80s, police departments in the late 80s, they were beginning, they had a computer system. It wasn't very sophisticated or comprehensive. They had, probably had one megabyte <laughs> of RAM, but there were those systems just beginning to surface, but it is tricky, and I do slip up occasionally, although a reader recently complained because she thought in 1988 there were no leaf blowers. It's like, help me out, there were probably leaf blowers in 1914, <laughs> but readers, you know, they want it, they want the details right, and that, I, that keeps me on my toes. Well, um, as a, a writer, too, you must have a, a lot of fun because one thing I notice in this book, there's a great scene where uh, Kinsey's using note cards. Yes. And what's so so wonderful is she envisions the information flowing around her uh, on these yes. note cards. And so what I realized was, was that we were having a vision of the past informed by our understanding of the present, but yeah. it worked for it within, within the context. I thought that was very clever and, 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 uh, and as a writing tool. Well, I use index cards myself all the time. What I do, for instance, if I've written a sequence that seems muddy, I'll break it down onto index cards because it's easy to move cards around. 
if you if you have chapters, if you have pages, if you have scenes, it's easy to get married to the sequence and to the order of events. You put it on an index card in an abbreviated form, you can, you can lay it out, you can see where you've erred. So that's part of my process also. Kinsey goes to the public library. Now there's a concept. What I like about it is that it keeps her sleuthing very personal and very simple. She believes you do interviews face-to-face -face because you see so much more than talking to some texting, for instance, <laughs> a concept she would never have, of course. But I think it allows me to tell stories in a very old-fashioned way. Well, one of the things I think, too, is true about your stories. In a sense, though, this is a, you'll find this in the mysteries and with the mysteries, it's certainly not a very traditional mystery because we know who done it pretty yes. much from the get-go. And I think one of the things that uh, your books do is give us a really great vision of America. I mean, these are social documents of what things were like. Right. And I think that's, uh, that's, I think, one of their true values. That's what makes them so compelling, ultimately. I hope so. I mean, I would hate to think I'm doing all that. If it comes to pass, it's sort of a byproduct of my demented imagination. I am not calculating that. I'm not setting out to make social commentary. Again, I think if I just say what is, if mm -hmm. I just describe a scene as, as I see it, then whatever comes from that, whatever resonates from that is in your mind. Well, no, I don't think that, I don't think that they don't have an agenda. Right, they, exactly. There's no agenda, but there's a very clear vision, and I think that's yeah. a very interesting uh, way to, to write a, a mystery. Now, um, Kinsey has, one of the things that's uh, fun in this book is uh, Diana Alvarez, the yes. reporter. And yeah. what, what what's interesting is that uh, at first, when you we first meet her in, early on, I mean, she's almost more despicable than Dante. Oh, I know. Well, Diana Alvarez, we meet in U.S. for Undertow, mm -hmm. and she's despicable there. Kinsey doesn't like her, and Kinsey's very clear about who she likes, although she does notice that Diana Alvarez wears these really keen outfits, and it's one of the few times Kinsey gets into sort of girlish fantasies of what looks good, and she so resents Diana. Diana comes into her office at one point and puts, puts her purse on the desk. Kinsey's sitting there going, no, she's got a mic in there. Why would she put that purse up there with that? You know, so, it, it, and yet, in the course of the story, you see that relationship change. And at a certain point, Kinsey realizes that Diana Alvarez has qualities that can work to her advantage. So I don't know where that relationship would go in the next book. Now, um, too, I was thinking, you know, um, we talked about Ross McDonald, we talk, and, you know, you have Chandler, you have Hammett. These are, you know, the great male mystery writers. And I think, you know, as a, as a woman writer and writing about woman, women uh, with a woman protagonist, you have a, a bring a really different feel to the mystery genre. And, I, and I'd like you to just talk about, you know, uh, how you see the, your own work in in the genre at large? I think that in the early 80s, I do think because of the influence of Chandler and Dashiell Hammond, James M. Cain, 
I think male, and I again, I hate to sound sexist, but this is just the way I see it. I think male writers had begun to imitate the imitators. And so the form was getting very rigid and formalized. It was the gun and the bottom drawer and the whiskey and the cigarettes and the blonde bombshell. So many of those novels started with the blonde bombshell, my husband's missing, or the guy my blonde bombshell's missing. It just became a parody. And I think what women brought to the form we didn't know the rules. We made them up. You know, we knocked, We just knocked the doors down on that one. And I think that's freed up male writers to look at the form differently. So I think on one hand, we established the female writer of the female hard-boiled novel. I think we also allowed male writers to loosen up, you know, to explore their own issues in the form of the detective novel. You know, I, there's another scene in this book where um, Kinsey has what she calls an aha moment. And before she's thinking that, her brain is like a camera. And that she, you know, she has, she collects information and then at some point yeah. she twigs it, it to, to what the import of that information is. And I thought that was such an interesting observation into the way that she thinks, the way detectives think, and just the way people think, too. That is one of the toughest no moments to depict. I think all of us have those aha moments. We're all constantly assimilating information, perceptions, intuitions. Inevitably in our lives, there are those moments when you think, wow, got it. Suddenly things come together. In a work of fiction where that is still true, you have to be careful that it doesn't look like a writerly device. Like it doesn't look like a plot point. Like, God, I got to do something to jolt this character into a piece of awareness. So I'm careful with those moments because I think it's possible to lay the groundwork so that when the aha comes along, the reader realizes the same aha. Now, uh, I, one of the pleasures of books like this, too, is just to see the kind of the crime tech, you know, and, and the, you know, some of the research. And you do a great job with shoplifting. Uh, so talk about how, how did you find out all this stuff out about shoplifting? Do you have I, well, booster garments? There are many, many booster books. Garments? It, it is called loss prevention mm -hmm. and there are many books out for retailers because there are other issues I didn't even touch on for instance if you do a stop in a store where you believe somebody's shoplifting if you're wrong you have a lawsuit on your hands so retailers have a whole series of maneuvers they go through to keep from getting sued also they don't want to alienate their clients and their customers so it's a very delicate situation in which clearly on some occasions the law is being broken and sometimes the real tailor knows it and sometimes it's too risky because once once a lawsuit gets filed now the store detective and the clerk everybody has to go to court it's expensive it's bad publicity so these books written for retailers are full of amazing information. Also, I did a lot of just on the ground research, talking to store owners, big ones, little ones, 
I got to go behind the scenes and look at their monitors. I, I heard amazing stories about customers who were well-known that they knew were lifting goods. One In one store, they called this woman up and they said, we know you stole the stuff. And so she brought it all back. <laughs> well, that's, that's amusing. That didn't go into arrest, search and seizure. Somebody just had the good sense to call her and say, why don't you just bring it back and we'll let you come to the store again. Otherwise, you're 86 to run this place. Well, too, now I know why Walmart has greeters. <laughs> that is exactly true. In a store, generally, someone will say, hi there, how are you? May Let me know if you need anything. Because a shoplifter doesn't want to be recognized. A shoplifter does not want that eye contact. They don't want to be acknowledged. They far prefer it when it's busy and your attention as a sales clerk is distracted. What I realized about this book as I was reading it is one of the classic riffs, and I've read mysteries for bazillions of years, one of the classic riffs of all detective fiction is that your detectives are, they're always doing the cops work for them. Oh, right. Well, and the whole relationship of a private investigator to a, the police force, in many of the early books, there's that antagonism, you know, the wisecracks and people getting their heads busted. I'm crazy about cops, and I understand their job, and I think I understand the difference between a private investigator and that realm. Obviously, in writing fiction, I am not accurately reporting the life of a private investigator, which would put us all to sleep. They do records checks, you know, and now a lot of it's on the computer, but a private investigator generally doesn't get the snot beat out of them. But in fiction, I think the reader likes that physical battle in the end between the black hat and the white hat, the good guys and the bad. Well, one, you do a great job, too. Uh, you know, this novel is very delicately architected. I love, as I was reading this, I just felt like I was walking through this really well-crafted house with different rooms and, and, you know, finally coming to the very center of the, of the delicious candy exactly. and getting... <laughs> I know. And there, are, there is a moment there when I, I've heard from different readers, they're not getting where I'm going with it, you know. They know the pieces of their story, and they're watching, and they trust me that I'll pull it all together. Then you get to the scene, you go, oh, got it. And it's one of those moments, I think, for the reader, when suddenly all the information coalesces, and you see where I've been heading all this time. Well, that's interesting because you create for the reader an aha moment that's equivalent to what Kinsey experiences. Yes, yes. And that's the that's I guess the perhaps the job of the of the mystery writer. As you're crafting this series over uh, twenty two books, uh, I'd like you to just talk about you know your relationship with Kinsey. I mean, she must be a real person to you. She, well, she or I. You know, <laughs> toys are us. Well, I am Kinsey Milhone. Because she can only know what I know. Mm -hmm. So there is an odd relationship between us. I, I almost, I believe she is a creature apart from me. And in fact, one of my theories is that by the end of the alphabet, She'll be in charge. I will be the fictional <laughs> counterpart. She'll be going, Sue Graft and I invented her years ago. 
So I, I work to keep her flawed and inconsistent. She is not superwoman. She is not larger than life. She is who we are, only maybe a little braver and a little more courageous. Well, that brings me to mind another thing that I really liked about this book. There's a couple points in this book where Kinsey makes choices that don't seem like what you'd expect to read in a mystery, where she turns somebody down and says, no, I'm not going to do it. No, you can't leave that, whatever. And there's these great moments, and you think, wow, here's somebody acting sensibly for once. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, see, that goes back to the issue of plausibility. You know, in some novels, the, the heroine and her little thin nighty takes a flashlight and goes out in the dark, and the reader's going, well, you're such an idiot. Don't do that. I like for Kinsey, by and large, to be a sensible citizen. Now, you're at this point, you're well into W. Well, creeping ever optimistically into W. Do you know uh, what your where the what the other letters hold at all? Or no, nope. I know I believe Z is for zero, just because that sounds right to me. Have no clue what the story is. I. W, I think I know the story. I don't understand the structure yet, so that's what I'm playing with. You know, it's it's an odd story, and I don't, I'm not sure. I just got to trust the reader to follow me where I'm going. As as you uh, do this, it's to me one of the things that makes your books so entertaining is your willingness to kind of uh, throw out the rules with every yeah. book. Yeah. And, and doesn't that frighten you? Always, I'm always afraid. Because the risk is just letting it be. The risk is not trying to trump it up or maneuver it or manipulate the reader. Just to say what is, and I know what it's about, and trusting the reader to figure it out from the information I'm giving them. I've been speaking with Sue Grafton. Her newest book is V is for Vengeance. Thank you for joining me, Sue. Thank you. Great fun. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.